Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, how you doing? My name is Nolan. I am from Past Gas by Donut Media, the Internet's number one automotive history show. That's right. We talk car history. And this week we are talking about a lesser known underappreciated, underrated, undermentioned tuning house called Tommy Kyra. If you're deep into the JDM world, you know these guys. But for those of you who don't, Tommy Kyra is responsible for some of the most understated and just cool tuner cars out there. They had a really interesting philosophy on how they built their cars. Originally, one of the founders sold AMG and other European sports cars through his dealership in Japan and decided to take that same ethos with domestic Japanese vehicles, and they ended up with some really, really cool stuff. This is a cool story. This was a fun one, really just goofy time with James and Joe. So go check that out. Tommy Kyra on Past Gas, wherever you get your podcasts. Follow the show today. Thank you. Bye. nineteen eighty nine Bastrop County, Texas, just outside of Austin. Grandmother and florist Liz Carmichael sits at home with her tight knit family, watching television. She flips channels but stops short on the show Unsolved Mysteries. The air leaves the room as Liz locks eyes with herself. She, as well as her many run ins with the law, is a subject of tonight's segment. Liz hasn't been seen in eight years. But thanks to this episode, her long streak of avoiding the law would be over in a matter of days. Today on Past Gas, we're telling you the wild and true story of the Dale, the three-wheeled car embroiled in controversy, and the complicated woman at the center of it all, Geraldine Elizabeth Carmichael. The Dale was primed to alter the car industry forever. So why didn't it? What did Liz Carmichael do that had her on the run for decades? What's the story of a car so crazy it reinvented not one, but three wheels? Slap on your bell bottoms and impeach Nixon, because today on Pass Gas, we're going back to the 1970s. Pass Gas Podcast. It's about cars, it's not about ports. Weeeew. Hanging out. <laughs> Down the street. The street. Stacy's mom has got it. Damn, dude, I'm like a freaking encyclopedia, dude. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know all the songs. Uh, 
Give us give us a song. Give, give us a your most random song. Here, I'll I'll give you an artist. I'll oh. give you an artist, and you <laughs> sing their most famous song. How about that? Yes, yes. White Town. <laughs> We're just a couple of guys from okay, a here, big here white town. Uh, spin doctors. <laughs> um, and if you want to buy me flowers, nice, nice. Uh, spin doctors was my first album. My dad got a CD. This is how old I am. My dad got a CD player. And I was like five or six years old. He brought it home. He got it free from work. Whoa. Quote unquote. <laughs> it fell off a it fell off a truck. Here you go, Junior. <laughs> my dad my dad got a lot of my dad did a lot of deals. Uh, and uh he took us all to Target and we all picked out a, a CD. Oh, I love and that. I was like a little kid, so I didn't know what C D to get. He was like, Oh, check get this one, Spin Doctor. Yeah. And we went home and put it on and I was like, Man, you told me I was gonna like this. I don't like this. <laughs> So I went, <laughs> I went back and got crisscross. Oh, nice. With the overalls. Nice. My first CD was Incubus, uh, whatever that like. So pardon me while pardon I me, Pardon me. Pardon me. I think that was science. It's called science. Well, a decade ago, I never thought I would be a 23 on the verge. Spontaneous combustion. On the verge of spontaneous what combustion. What genre of music me? is that? Would you call that like? That's alternative, dude. They're a new metal band for sure. No, back then it was alternative. It's mm -hmm. alternative. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nah, they became alternative. Their first, like, two or three albums were, like, like Science and the one before that were definitely new metal. And then it, the Morning View was, like, third album, I believe. And that was, like, their, their, their turn to alternative. I think you're experiencing these uh, bands in retrospect, Nolan, as, like, a younger fan. And when Incubus I came am. out, there was no such thing as new metal. It was alternative. Uh, it was called alternative, bro. Oh, oh, are you sure? It's called alternative rock. Okay. Uh, welcome to Past Gas. We are not a new metal podcast, unfortunately. We are a car history show. We're an old metal podcast. And unfortunately, there's no way <laughs> no. there's no way of pivoting to new metal, so we're just gonna have to talk about old metal. Cars. Yes. Uh, cars. I'm your host, Nolan Sykes, joined as always by my co-host. We got Joe uh, Weber. Keep it juiced. I had to think about how to say that. And <laughs> And James Brandon Boyd <laughs> Pumper. <laughs> and today we are talking about The Dale. I do believe there's a documentary on HBO about this car, so you might be familiar with it already. It's very good. And if you're not, well, I have not seen it. All right. Uh, I think I'm ready to dive right in. What about you guys? Yeah, yeah man. Yeah, man. We're um, <laughs> legally obliged to say yes, so let's get it on. <laughs> That's right. Don't forget that. When we talk about figures of the past, we generally start with when and where they are born. But to give you an idea of just how shrouded in mystery this story is, we can't even provide you that. Sources say that Geraldine Elizabeth Carmichael, known as Liz, was born in 1927, or 1928, or 1937. And a birth certificate that could clarify that has never been found. According to Liz Carmichael herself, who will soon find out may or may not be the most reliable source. She was born in Indiana. Liz earned a mechanical engineering degree and married a NASA engineer with whom she had five children before he died and she became a widow. By the early 1970s, Liz, her kids, and Liz's sister-in-law, Vivian, had made their way out west to Los Angeles, California. Liz was not your average woman, most notably when it came to her build. 
At six foot one and over 200 pounds, she towered over others. She was tenacious, a fierce matriarch who oozed confidence. And she valued two things above all else, family and money. Religion didn't make the cut. In Liz's own words, quote, if you have enough self-esteem, you don't need God. Is confidence the only thing, the only flattering thing that you ooze? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. That guy, that guy's a nice guy. He oozes kindness. Like it's not, it doesn't really work. <laughs> oh man, this, I mean, he was oozing chivalry. <laughs> yeah. Like his humility was just yeah. seeping out yeah, of his yeah, pores, like you know. Stank up the air. <laughs> uh, speaking of which, Liz had so much self-esteem, in fact, that in 1973 she left her marketing job to create a brand new car company, the 20th Century Motor Car Corporation. The automotive industry at the time was even more male-dominated than it is today, and Liz was determined to be its first and only female CEO. But she wasn't going to stop there. Liz claimed she was going to revolutionize transportation and outshine the most powerful car companies in America. Liz alerted the presses, quote, I'm going to shock General Motors, Ford, and the rest of them right out of their big overstuffed seats. That's how she talks in the documentary. That's a legit impression. Gotcha. One of the only ones I've ever done on this show. <laughs> She's one of the only voices I've ever actually heard. And Liz was going to shock them with a three-wheeled car made out of some dude's garage. That dude was Dale Clift, a guy who had a knack for thinking outside of the box. On his own time, Dale did what any forward-thinking engineer would do with some electrical conduit, naugahyde, and an old motorcycle. He built a two-seat, three-wheeled sports car. The vehicle had two wheels in the front and one in the back. Dale never dreamed of wide-scale production for his unique project car. He simply used it to bop around town and show off to his friends. This is like a, uh, what are those? Like a T-Rex? Yeah. Or like a... The Polaris? Yeah, Polaris. Oh, yeah. I was thinking when, like... It's like a, so, Rachel, obviously, I live with Rachel. She was asking me questions about three-wheeled cars, and she was like, I want to tie it into other ones. And I realized that Max, our editor for D-List, has driven, like, three out of the four three-wheeled cars that have ever existed. <laughs> and I'm like, that's so wow. Max to just be, like, a three-wheel weirdo. But when Liz Carmichael caught wind of his creation, she saw a golden opportunity. For $1,000, she convinced Dale to sell her his prototype and the rights to the design with the promise of $3 million more million after she got into full-scale production. Dale agreed, and Liz cemented the deal by naming the car after him. <laughs> the Dale. <laughs> it's a, such a good car name. <laughs> it's so good, dude. The Dale. Is it officially the Dale or is it just Dale? The the Dale. The Dale. Yeah, like the Mustang. Okay. No, but uh, yeah. Okay. Like you don't say like the Sebring, but right. But you That's do what I'm say saying. the PT does, Cruiser. Yeah, with the badge. Uh, we're getting into the weeds here, but I'm just saying, does the does the badge on this car say the Dale, or is it just Dale? The badge on the car says <laughs> Dale. <laughs> okay but you call it the dale well I'm, uh, okay i'm glad thank you <laughs> to bring the dale to life liz established a 20th century motors r&d lab in an enormous airplane hangar in burbank 
She signed on designers and engineers, some of whom had worked on high-profile NASA projects. They gussied up Dale Cliff's prototype to make it more space-age, increasing its aerodynamics and constructing the body out of what Liz called rocket resin, a lightweight, nearly indestructible aerospace plastic. Liz took out an ad space for the Dale with a tagline, designed and built like it's ready to be driven to the moon. I think that could be workshopped a little bit more. It's a little <laughs> long. Um, to finish off the space age look, Liz pulled a sauce boss and made that puppy bright yellow. Oh, I get it. Like, uh, like Guy Fieri. Clarified butter. <laughs> Why doesn't he market that? Like spicy, spicy ghee? Right? Oh my God. He could Ooh, make a million dollars off of that. Liz set out on a huge marketing campaign to advertise the revolutionary Dale, garnering interviews with Newsweek and People magazine. She touted the car's impeccable safety standards, claiming it was impossible to flip because the center of gravity was always between its three wheels. Liz liked to say that by losing a wheel, she eliminated 300 pounds and $300 off the price. At just $1,900, Liz claimed any American could afford her car. For comparison, a new car in 1974 would run you on average about $4,400. But Liz's most sensational claim was that the lightweight Dale could get a whopping 70 miles per gallon. This would be impressive for any car in any era, but at the time, Americans were still reeling from the 1973 oil crisis that spawned a massive gas shortage. Consumers needed fuel-efficient cars, and the Dale, Liz claimed, was the answer to their prayers. In late 1973, a non-functioning showroom model premiered at the Los Angeles International Auto Show, where interested buyers could see the groundbreaking car up close. Liz's bravado had already grabbed the interest of the public, but the addition of NASA engineers lent a new level of credibility to the project, and it wasn't long before seed capital came pouring in. Between angel investors and consumer pre-orders, Liz had accumulated $3 million in advance payment, equal to about $16 million today. Donut has a NASA engineer working for us. Didn't uh, Claire work at JPL? <laughs> JPL's not NASA. NASA's not just like the Kleenex of space. It's NASA's a specific thing. Yeah, but yeah, it's not the Kleenex. It's it's more of the puffs. NASA JPL is like the puffs of of Kleenex. Okay, and Kleenex is the NASA. I think she is a rocket scientist. Yeah, yes. I'll just say we have a rocket scientist working for us. <laughs> the Dale seemed destined for success, but the car and the woman both had secrets of their own. For starters, if Liz's birth certificate were ever located, it wouldn't say Geraldine Elizabeth Carmichael at all, but rather Gerald Dean Michael, sex assigned at birth, male. She just took Geraldine and uh, made yeah. Geraldine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, that is a convenient combination yeah. of names. And also she's like, well, I'm going to sell cars. I might as well put car in front of Michael. <laughs> car Michael. <laughs> <Man>. <laughs> and like, uh, I don't know, James's mom's name. I don't know. <laughs> what? <laughs> Gerald who went by Jerry, was no stranger to a life of crime, and the FBI was no stranger to Jerry. By the early 1960s, they had volumes of files regarding Jerry's personal life, criminal operations, and more. According to these files, 
Jerry served overseas in the U.S. Army stationed in Germany. Here, Jerry married a woman and had two children, but abandoned them to return to the U.S. Back in the States, Jerry tried to become a newspaper publisher, failed, then became a door-to-door salesperson. And Jerry was exactly the type of snake oil salesman you were warned about. Jerry would sweet-talk consumers into putting down payments on gadgets like vacuum cleaners and knitting machines, then skip town before ever delivering the product. What is a knitting knitting machine? machine? I mean, I know what it is, but I've never even heard uh, of it. A sewing machine? I would have... Oh, I didn't even know there's knitting machines. Oh. Uh, you know, just given, giving the, the trade of salesman a bad name, you know? Not cool. Not cool. If you guys, if you guys were door-to-door salesmen, what, what would you sell? Ooh. Uh, coupons. Coupon booklets. Mm. Oh, like entertainment uh, <laughs> booklet coupons, out of date, out of date TV uh, TV weeklies or uh, the TV guides. <laughs> I would sell um, bootleg concert merch. Oh, that's, that's nice. Yeah, like you want to you want people to think you saw the Yeezus tour. Nice. Yeah, that's I good. think I would sell modular lunch boxes. Ooh, modular lunch boxes. I'm interested. Look at at how many configurations you can put. You could put a sandwich here. If you want to do a bento box one day, you switch it around this way. I would buy one of those from you. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm interested. Jerry's second wife, Juanita, recalls moving approximately 21 times in the short two years they were married. They had two kids before Jerry moved on to a third wife, Betty Sweets. Sick name. Despite only knowing each other for a month, they married and had a child, but it wouldn't last. It wouldn't? No, man. Why not? (laughs) (laughs) In 1959, with three marriages and five children in his rear view, Jerry married the woman that would stick it out through thick and thin, Vivian. That's right. Liz's so-called quote-unquote, sister-in-law, Vivian, was actually her spouse and mother to their five children. Whoa, so he's got 10 children? Beyond embezzling down payments door-to-door, Jerry got into counterfeiting, which, in my opinion, if you can do it, (laughs) is like one of the sickest crimes. Like, if I could be, if I could choose a life of crime to, like, get away with, Mm -hmm. mm, it'd be counterfeiting. What would you counterfeit? Money, dummy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why would you counterfeit you anything think? other than money? Like, yeah, yeah. Like, like what are, you're just adding a step. Like, yeah, printing money is like the most coolest <laughs> thing. There's no victim. Yeah. The, yeah except the account. But you're never going to like make enough Our that it would even. Yeah. If James's entire life was printing giant stacks of money. I would only print what I need. I wouldn't. Like Jeff Bezos is doing more uh, harm to the economy than I ever could. Fair enough. I, fair enough. You, but you, I, I like the premise that you would counterfeit within your means. <laughs> or I mean, only I'm like, a, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm courteous I mean, like, with my federal crime. I'm fine. <laughs> but I mean, I'm on board. I'm on board for global domination. But, you know, like. I think jewel thief is the coolest crime. Too much, too much cry for the money. You know what I mean? Too much. Yeah, but it's too so much cool, squeeze though. for the juice. 
if you if I woke up one day and could like do parkour silently and steal jewels <laughs> and not get caught, then yeah, I'd be a jewel thief. But I'd also be printing money back in my house. I think I'd be a drug mule. <laughs> Passing bad checks and churning out fake IDs led to a 1961 counterfeiting arrest. Rather than serve time, Jerry jumped bail and went on the run with Vivian and the kids. The family wow. never stayed in one place for more than a month or two at a time. They'd even run drills to practice clearing out the house before authorities could nab them. They could be in the car and back on the run in less than 10 minutes. Now, this fast-paced life bouncing from state to state would span decades. And throughout it all, Gerald Dean Michael is coming to terms with the fact that what the world sees as a he is really a she born in the wrong body. We'll be right back with more of this story. But first, a word from our sponsors. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Jerry didn't start transitioning to Liz until the late 1960s when she was in her 40s. That may seem late by today's standards, but remember at the time that identifying as transgender was extremely rare, and Liz was, in a sense, paving her own way. While still presenting as a man to the world, Jerry started dressing and acting as Mommy Liz at home. Her family was surprisingly cool with it. Liz donned a wig, patted her body to give her an hourglass shape, and spoke into a voice recorder to train her voice to sound more feminine. The kids started referring to their mother, Vivian, as Aunt Vivian, which is how she's introduced herself to outsiders. As time went on, Liz started uh, taking gender-affirming medication like estrogen and testosterone blockers. She got her meds from Mexico, where they're more affordable and less regulated than in the U.S. This was very common for trans individuals at the time, who were forced to turn to underground medical markets and out-of-country procedures. Liz underwent a slew of physical changes in Mexico. She had her testicles removed, the first step in a two-part surgery. 
In part two, the P is surgically reshaped into a V, but Liz was never able to finish the procedure. She did, however, get breast implants. She arrived for her procedure dressed as a man and emerged from the operating room dressed as a woman. After that day in 1969, Liz never went back to dressing like a man, in or out of the house. She had left Jerry behind for good. At least, that's what she thought. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just like in, you know, 50 years, which actually is a very long time. That's half a century. We've gone from people, you know, skedaddling down to Mexico yeah. to um, people majoring in gender-affirming surgery. Yeah, I think that's in awesome. college. I think it's awesome that there's a safe way to do it now and you don't have to tiptoe around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> now, I want to clarify that Liz was not a disguise. It is tempting to see it like that as a brilliant way to keep one's identity under wraps, but it's just not true. She didn't live as a man and throw on a wig when the cops drove by. She lived her life as Liz constantly, in and out of public view. The fraud was not that she was a woman. She was a woman who happened to be a fraudster. And the world was about to find that out with the Dale. I just want to point out how good of a salesman she had to be to be like, uh, actually, I'm the mom now, <laughs> and you're going to be the aunt. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? Yeah, but I'm the mom. Yeah, but actually, I'm the mom now, and you're Aunt Vivian. Fast forward to 1974, as Liz Carmichael, CEO, continues her massive marketing campaign for The Dale. The Dale. <laughs> her claims seem to get more and more sensational, like when she said she drove The Dale into a brick wall at 15 miles per hour, and both she and the car oh were A-OK. That's not... Who believed... All right, that's... I'm going to... I I backed into my apartment <laughs> building a couple of days ago. <laughs> At like two miles an hour, and it was like the loudest sound I've ever heard. This is dude. I had to back a, I had to back a pickup truck into the Jetta for a car park, yeah. Dad, and it was oh, I know, like, yeah, it yeah. was almost impossible. For, my body barely let me do it. <laughs> yeah, it was like, are you sure, dummy? It was like, yep. Uh, we've we've pitched that a bunch. No one will let us do it. Like our insurance. I we, really like uh, Nolan and I have both yeah, been like, I want to I want to wreck a car. There was a guy, there's like a specific guy that they used to test uh, like how cars rolled and crashed and stuff. And he just would do like hop in a car and go 40 and then just like take his hands off the wheel and just like fly <laughs> off the road. And he was like fine after every crash. <laughs> so what we're saying, like driving a plastic car into a brick wall at 50 is, is going to do a little bit more than what Liz is, is, is claiming here. That's the equivalent of like a kid being like, my dad's James Bond. Yeah. Like, and this is before uh, the internet, yeah. so no one can like look up a video and <laughs> call her a liar. Like James Bond is like based on my dad. <laughs> I told you about that kid who I went to school who said his dad made the steps in Goldeneye, right? That's a sick lie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nah, I think that... <laughs> my dad uh, made the steps in Goldeneye. It's like just plausible... My grandpa is the reason you can't use cell phones at a gas station. <laughs> yeah, it's like, how do you even check that? <laughs> and because of these awesome, awesome lies, somehow more and more Dales are purchased on pre-order. But there's just one problem. A working model still doesn't exist. 
Whoa. All Liz had was an engineless showroom model. This made her next promise even more incredulous. Liz vowed to have the Dale in the driveways of American consumers by 1975, just a year away. One year is an insanely tight timeline, okay, for R&D and production, especially for a brand new company. It seemed unfathomable, but Liz was convinced, and so were the investors. I mean, the the De Tomaso... Mangusta, I think, or it might have been the Pantera or something, went from design to production in like nine months. So it's not impossible. It's just for a car company that doesn't exist already, this is basically impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Despite 20th Century Motors looking legit on the outside, employees recall an unconventional workspace. Questionable characters with apparent mob ties <laughs> hung around the headquarters. And Liz doled out paychecks and fat stacks of cash, which is, I'm pretty sure, illegal. Enthusiasts from all over would flock to Liz to invest their time, money, and labor in the project. Oh, so we might get into this, but she, it's a, so if someone pre orders a car, you're not allowed to spend that money. Yeah, that makes sense. You have to hold that in like basically escrow. So, like, she's Hmm. paying to develop the car. With the pre-order money, which is like super illegal. Yeah, I didn't know that. I thought it was like the. I thought it was was the pre-order was kind of like a wink, wink way of being like, "Hey, that's can like you give us some money." How to, you know to do Kickstarter this. works now, but like you need mm-hmm. you needed seed money back then and investors, and not you know like bankroll R and D off of pre-orders. Yeah, and also like Kickstarter, once you raise the money, if you don't deliver the product you have to give the money back yeah so essentially kickstarter is acting as escrow you see so like we we just launched uh our new car collectible stocky on kickstarter and we reached our fund we are fully quote unquote fully funded and we did that in eight hours which is awesome but like now we're at the point where we're like not embarrassed (laughs) right but we are on the hook to make all that stuff so now we're far enough into it where it might really hurt our company uh because we're not going to make we right now we're not making any money we just have to make all these toys yeah so like that's that's like that's what fundraising uh is so she never turned investors away, so the R&D lab ended up being filled with random workers with no purpose. <laughs> this annoyed the OG engineers who grew suspicious about what they'd gotten mixed up in. <laughs> that would be annoying. <laughs> yeah, as 1974 wore on, troubles seemed to close in from every angle. The car wasn't coming together and money was running out. Employees were embittered as their paychecks trickled in late, if at all. Media personalities questioned the project's legitimacy as 20th Century Motors ran into legal trouble with the state of California. But in her magnetic way, Liz rallied the team. She had an upcoming meeting with Japanese investors, and she claimed that this would fix everything as long as they could whip together a running Dale for the demonstration. This high-stakes meeting that would decide the company's fate would be the car's first-ever test drive. Against all odds... Liz's team managed to slap together a working model for the investor meeting. As a gaggle of Japanese businessmen watched on, engineers John Griffiths and Hans Hansen climbed into the two-seater. Griffiths hit the gas and miraculously 
the Dale took off. For the first time ever, there is a glimmer of hope that the car Liz had been peddling to investors might actually come to fruition. That is, until the driver made a sharp turn and the Dale did what Liz claimed was impossible. It flipped. I mean, why would you, why would you no. yank it and, and even get close to flipping it if investors are watching? The investors were out. Apparently, so in the documentary, uh, everyone involved at this moment was just basically like, and then he, like, basically that. He was just like, why the f <laughs> did he do? Like, he literally didn't have to do that. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he hot dogged it. Yeah. And just ruined the whole thing. Oh, my God. As her Dale fantasy unraveled, Liz's legal trouble with the state of California mounted. There were accusations of securities fraud and bilking investors out of millions. She was in hot water for ordering stock for public sale without a permit. <laughs> Dude, what a flexy crime. The DMV discovered Liz didn't even have a state permit to manufacture cars. The Department of Corporations issued a desist and refrain order for illegally selling franchises and vehicles that didn't exist. Investors demanded a return on their money, but there was no money to be returned. No one enjoyed Liz's downfall more than local KABC TV news anchor Dick Carlson. Tucker Carlson's piece of dad. This is Tucker Carlson's dad. Carlson was convinced that Dale was a scam and had been trying to prove it for some time. He and his team had orchestrated a gotcha moment where they sent their cameraman Dennis into the showroom posing as a customer, knowing full well that Liz had been ordered to stop selling cars. But the 20th Century Motors salesman still let Dennis pre-purchase a Dale. And as soon as the transaction was complete, Carlson busted in with news cameras to prove Liz was skirting the law. But Dick wanted something bigger. <laughs> One night, he tailed one of Liz's employees leaving work. Carlson followed him into a bar and grilled him about the goings-on at 20th Century Motors. This employee opened up and became a key source for Carlson. Snitch! <laughs> uh, the source even went as far as to snag a cup that Liz was holding, which Carlson passed along to the LAPD. In time, this one cup would seal Liz's fate. So this dude, Dick Carlson, is a real piece of shit. Yeah. And... You, it's like gives you a window into like how his son became such a terrible piece of yeah. shit. He was like obsessed, and with, and uh, even in the like modern interviews with him, he still like misgenders her and is just like uh -huh. so disrespectful. And you can tell he's yeah. just like one of those old school dudes who's like, ugh. But like obsessed, like obsessed with ruining this woman's life. Yeah. Early nineteen seventy five. In the midst of all this bad legal attention in California, Liz took what was left of the investment money and moved the company headquarters to Dallas. Here, she rebranded the Dale as the Revette. Ooh. You'd think she'd be trying to lay low, but Liz did the exact opposite. Liz announced that 20th Century Motors would build a $1 million research lab in Dallas set to produce 88,000 cars that year. She even convinced the Price is Right game show to include a showroom model of the Revette as a prize. Rather than scaling down, she started marketing other three-wheeled vehicles like the Vanagon, a three-wheeled station wagon. <laughs> also already a name of a car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but just weeks after relocating to Dallas, the weight of the California justice system came crashing down on her. 
Liz received an injunction from the California Superior Court stating her company was unable to actually produce a car and was indicted for grand theft and fraud. Authorities came to arrest Liz in her Dallas home, but once again, old Slippery Liz escaped with her family in tow. Dinner was still on the table. She was always a half step ahead, but the authorities didn't come up totally short. It was in her Dallas home that they discovered Liz's wigs and padding and began wondering if Liz Carmichael was really who she said she was. I can't even get my kids to get ready for school. Like, how does she get them just to just <laughs> run out of the house? and leave forever my kids won't even call me dad they call me they call me slave I don't know. <laughs> sorry i like the term uh bad legal attention <laughs> uh, guys i'm getting some bad legal attention bad legal attention right now back in los angeles the lapd got fingerprint results back from the cup and were shocked to find it matched jerry dean michael a man who'd been on the lam for decades this paired with the evidence found in Dallas revealed Liz's secret past. Dick Carlson got the scoop and outed Liz on live TV. For dramatic effect, the program cross-dissolved between photos of Liz and Jerry while Carlson peddled the narrative that Liz was impersonating a woman to evade capture. All told, Carlson and his team devoted 27 segments to Liz and the Dale drama. Oh my God. As, yeah, like you said, James, obsessed. just obsessed, you know. As more and more outlets picked up the story, Liz was ridiculed, misgendered, and made an absolute mockery of. People seemed more offended by Liz's transness than her alleged fraud. And her face popping up all over the media made it impossible for Liz to hide. After two months on the run since her close call in Dallas, Liz was tracked down in Miami when a neighbor reported her whereabouts. She had been working for a dating service under the alias Susan Rains. Liz was arrested on April 12, 1975, and extradited to L.A. to stand trial for her crimes, old and new. Wow. Dang, all over the U.S. I just want to make it clear that we're not saying, we're not saying that this woman didn't deserve to like, go to jail. No, of course not. She's a, a fraudulent yeah. person. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Despite identifying as a woman, Liz was put in a men's jail while awaiting trial. Here, she endured awful conditions. She was denied hormone medication. Fellow inmates severely beat her while prison guards refused to intervene. With two black eyes and a swollen face, Liz hunkered down in her cell and spent 14 months studying law in preparation for her case. As the court proceedings began, it was clear Liz was on trial as a trans woman just as much as she was on trial for fraud. The media would poke and prod at her gender identity, to which Liz once snappily clapped back, Whatever claim to fame I have is as a producer of automobiles and not a sex change artist. During a landmark hearing, it was decided that Liz could dress as a woman and be addressed by female pronouns throughout the trial. She was a woman in the eyes of the courts, which was actually a momentous new benchmark and recognition of personhood for trans people in the U.S. justice system. But the real fireworks came when Liz ditched her counsel and opted to represent herself. Never a good decision. I mean, she spent... What, 14 months studying law? <laughs> oh, she okay. That's it? That's all you got to do? Over the nine-month trial, one of the longest in L.A. Superior Court history, Liz laid out her case. She offered evidence that investment funds were funneled into and not out of the company and claimed 
the only holdup in getting Dales to roll off the assembly line was <laughs> this trial. Liz appealed as a labor rights hero fighting for free enterprise. She was doing something good for America, but the state of California was interfering with her right to be an entrepreneur and a female entrepreneur at that. She insisted she never intended to dupe investors out of money. The Dale was viable and just hitting a snag at the moment. As Liz's daughter Candy put it, quote, the woman was a woman, the car was a car. I love that her defense is like, I can't make cars because you're making me stay right here. If I wasn't here, I would be making the cars. <laughs> Listen, I got yeah, pretty bold. We got to get the demo tapes so that we can sell the album so that we can pay you. It's like it's such a good scene from uh, Boogie Night. Yeah. <laughs> you got to give us the masters so we can make the hits so we can pay for the album. <laughs> but. The prosecution chipped away at Liz's story, and the real nail in the coffin came when jurors were allowed to inspect the Dale up close. What they found was a Frankenstein mess. The accelerator was detached and the car had no engine. The rear wheel was being held up by two-by-fours, and the doors were attached with regular house door <laughs> hinges. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> this sounds like a car we'd find in one of our Craigslist challenges, yep. James. Parts of the car were held together with wire, and the alleged safety glass windows were more like plexiglass. The Dale was a dud. Plexiglass is safe, though. Safer than glass in terms of, yeah. I mean, it doesn't shatter. You know, but I don't know if it's <clears> safer. <throat> I don't think it is. It's, just, it's lighter. That's why race cars use it. Anyway, on January 24th, 1977, the verdict came down. Liz was guilty on oh. 31 counts. This, yeah. This included the counterfeiting and the bail jumping charges from her days as Jerry, as well as grand theft, fraud, and conspiracy for the Dale Rivette fiasco. Liz was released on $50,000 bail, paid for by a TV production company in exchange for the rights to her story. She spent four years appealing her conviction to no avail. Then in late 1980, on the day of her final sentencing hearing before going to prison, Liz did what Liz does best. She skipped town. Come on, kids, we're going again. <laughs> <laughs> but this time, she would do it as a single mother. Vivian wasn't up for life on the run anymore. The kids were allowed to choose who they wanted to go with, and they picked Mommy Liz. The two women's... Yeah, what? No. I mean, that's all they know, though. Like, why? Yeah. It's like yeah. something different to stay somewhere. Fair enough. Hey, we're going to we're going to uh, Lincoln. We're going to get Sonic on the way. <laughs> yeah, and and yeah, Liz <laughs> okay. does seem like the kind of mom who's like, you guys want to go to Waffle House for dinner? Yeah, <laughs> like I don't know, Apple Applebee's. The two women separated amicably, keeping in touch when they could. But a few years later, Vivian died of cancer. Liz never stopped loving her. She put up a beautiful photo of Vivian with her two fluffy white cats everywhere they lived, all over the U.S. for the next eight years. Yeah. Eight years on During the run. those eight years, Dick Carlson, the man who outed Liz on live television, grew paranoid. He was convinced that Liz was going to hunt him down and take her revenge. He even went as far as to have a custom briefcase built with a bulletproof top and a gun compartment inside that he would leave open on his newsroom oh desk ready God. for an ambush. 
But the ambush never came. Liz had committed countless frauds, but never a violent crime. I kind of love this part of the story because, like, he shouldn't yeah. get off scot free. Like, he, this is a, the mental tax he has to deal with. Mm -hmm. Plus, Liz had bigger fish to fry. As her kids grew up and had kids of their own, Liz had a larger nomadic family to provide Whoa. for. They're like a like a circus now. <laughs> After bouncing all over the country, the Carmichael clan eventually returned to Texas and settled, of all places, in a town called Dale. <laughs> That's right. Hell yeah. The Dale lady who took the Dale money hid out in Dale, Texas. Can't write this stuff. That's like, uh, they found like an infamous mob boss in Corleone, Sicily. <laughs> <laughs> In Dale, which is near Austin, Liz established a home base consisting of multiple mobile homes on a four-acre lot. But funds were running low, and Liz needed a way to make some cash. Under the alias Catherine Elizabeth Johnson, she started a family business, Roadway Flowers. Liz would buy wholesale flowers and then hire low-income or homeless employees to sell them on street corners. In addition to a paycheck, she also gave them a place to live. After so much time on the run, the Carmichaels put down roots in Dale. And there was some semblance of stability until. We'll get back to more past gas, but right now, a word from our sponsors. April 5th, 1989. Liz's Unsolved Mysteries episode oh. airs. The family watches in shock and horror as the screen flashes with a number to call if you've seen this woman. Liz knew right then and there that her time was up. She wasn't a recluse. She was out and about town. Within minutes, the show received a tip from someone who recognized Liz as a local flower vendor near Austin. Just going back to Dale, Texas real quick. Like, I wonder if there's an aspect of like, we should live here because this is so yeah. obvious that no one would ever check to lit. Like, no one would ever check mm -hmm. this place. <laughs> yeah. No one would ever think to look for us here. Oh, there's only uh, <laughs> 500 people in Dale. Oh, well, that also is very appealing. Ah, but this time, there was no 10-minute evacuation. No new alias. No more running. Liz was resigned to serve her time so she and her family wouldn't have to spend life in a constant state of worry. Within weeks, Texan authorities arrested Liz at her home. She bade farewell to the family she managed to keep together all these years and was put on a plane to California. News cameras swarmed. Liz was paraded around in handcuffs. She was older and more bedraggled now, off her meds, unable to afford them. She looked gruff, with nothing resembling the bravado of Liz the car maker or Liz the self-appointed counsel. Here, exposed on national television, she was Liz the fugitive, finally captured. Liz was sentenced to one to ten years for her crimes. Despite her objections and her earlier landmark hearing, recognizing her womanhood, Liz was sent to a men's prison. Here, she spent 20 hours a day in a 7 by 11 cell. The other four hours, she feared abuse from inmates and guards alike. After 18 months, Liz was released as a free woman. She returned to her family in Texas, picked up her flower business, and put the Dale to rest for good. Not bad. Wow. But Liz Carmichael, true to form, kept having run-ins with the law. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Her flower business was busted for not paying taxes and vending without a license. Liz's health deteriorated. She broke her hip and distrusting of doctors never actually had it checked out. 
Oh, God. As it grew worse and worse, Liz also developed skin and throat cancer. She died from melanoma on her nose in 2004, the same day she was finally admitted to the hospital. Oh, my God. Jeez. Her kids didn't have money to bury her, which wouldn't have been an issue for Liz, who was known to say, don't waste money on a funeral. Just throw my body in a ditch somewhere. Her family did her one better and donated it to science. Members of Liz's family agree that she broke the law and should have had to answer for that, but they never saw her as a villain the way the media portrayed her. They describe her as an amazing mother who'd simply bitten off more than she could chew, trying to turn the Dale out so fast. The tight-knit Carmichael family has since drifted apart. Dale Cliff, the grandfather of the Dale, if you will, was embarrassed by the drama and negativity surrounding the car. He distanced himself as best he could. All told, he only ever received $1,001 for his prototype. All the other checks he received from Liz bounced. (laughs) But he did start the Dale Development Company and had a few patents to his name before passing away just shy of his 50th birthday. Damn, that's young. Jeez, that's young. In this long saga, only three Dale prototypes were ever made. Only one of these even ran under its own power, and only briefly. So where are they now? Well, one of them is on display at the Peterson Auto Museum here in Los Angeles. One is in a private collection and hasn't been seen in decades. Some question if it even exists, or if only two Dales were ever made. And the third one wound up at the Speedway Motors Museum of American (laughs) Speed in Lincoln, Nebraska, after its own intriguing journey. Hey, did I call it or what? Lincoln. I guess I didn't call it. I just mentioned Lincoln offhand. (laughs) There it is. Not long after Liz's company went under, a man named Dean Moon spotted the bright yellow Dale on the roof of a muffler shop. Dean Moon was one of the original founders of SEMA and a close friend of our boy Carol Shelby. He even owned the garage where, in 1962, Shelby installed a small block Ford V8 in the first ever Cobra. Knowing the story behind the Dale, Moon convinced the muffler shop owner to sell it to him. He planned to develop the Dale into a kit car, but all of the vehicle's baggage and bad press forced him to abandon the idea. Then, in turn, Moon sold the car to his friend, <laughs> Speedy Bill Smith, in Nebraska. At Speedway Sports, the home of speed. <laughs> after opening his automotive museum in 1992 speedy bill put the dale on display where you can still see it today speedy bill speed museum of speed (laughs) speedy but come on down to speedy bill speedway motor museum of american (laughs) speed right here in lincoln nebraska liz carmichael wanted to go down in history as a trailblazer and she did but not necessarily for the reasons that she envisioned Despite the Dale being Liz's undoing, she was proud of what she'd accomplished with it and always had a photo of the car displayed in the family's many, many homes throughout the years. This three-wheeled car of the future was a valid dream to believe in, but Liz's downfall was convincing the world that dream was a reality. That's a good story. Mm -hmm. I made it up. (laughs) I made it all up. That was improv. You should sell that. Mm. Yeah, it's just kind of for us. If you want to know more about this crazy story, check out the H- HBO docu-series, The Lady in the Dale. Yeah, it's um, really interesting. I think I will now. Should we tell our listeners about the email? 
Yeah, guys, we uh, we yeah. got. We, hey, <laughs> we're uh, we're in the '90s now, baby. We got an email address. Uh, if you want to talk to us, I mean, we'd love it if you talk to us. Uh, you can send us comments, corrections. Uh, whatever else to pass gas at donutmedia.com. We want to hear your feedback. We want to hear your feedback. We want to hear your car stories. If we cover a topic that connects with you, you have a personal anecdote about yeah. it. We'd love to hear it. Uh, yeah. So hit us up. Let's, <laughs> let's chat. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to the show. Once again, if you want to follow my co-hosts on all social media, you can do that at Joe G Weber. Uh, follow Joe and watch us. Yeah, Twitch we've streams. been doing Forza Horizon Four, and we're inviting anyone who watches the stream to jump in and play with us. Yeah, so that's really cool. Follow James at James Pumphrey. Follow me at Nolan J Sykes if you'd like. Big thank you to our producer and editor this week. We got Thomas Willett and Bridget Davies. As always, is kicking ass for the Pass Gas team, keeping the ship afloat. Shout out to my roommate Rachel. We're writing this. If you liked this podcast, go ahead and follow <laughs> us or subscribe or whatever, uh, wherever you listen to it. It's free. Uh, and tell a friend about it because, you know, podcasts really are spread mostly by word of mouth. <laughs> All right. That's it. Uh, be kind. Rewind. And be kind. <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.